Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Peggy Schaefer, Executive Director of Connect Maine, the broadband authority for the state of Maine, where she manages rulemaking efforts, investment decisions, and policy recommendations. Peggy joins me to discuss the state of broadband in the state of Maine and what her office has been able to accomplish, as well as what she hopes to see from federal broadband legislation and why she believes that we need to stop giving money to the FCC. Peggy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for asking. Just to start things off, why don't you tell me a bit about the state of broadband in the state of Maine? Um, where does the state stand in terms of numbers of providers, access to networks, and affordability right now? So we have sort of your traditional big providers. We have a, 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 our what we call rate of return carrier, which is consolidated. Um, and then we have a number of small uh, ILACs in the state, probably five or six. And then we have a lot of small uh, independent uh, internet service providers who uh, work to bring um, broadband to different communities. And they're a pretty aggressive bunch. Aggressive is a good thing in broadband. Um, we think we have about 85,000 homes that are not connected. That's based on sort of the worst FCC data. Um, so, uh, you know, the FCC data is not very good. And so our guesstimates are based on that, along with some other work that we've done. Uh, working with providers to get a little better information. The more rural you have, the more, um, so location really matters in terms of where your broadband is, right? So the more rural you are, the less likely you are to have a good connection. Um, you know, and affordability is a significant issue in Maine. We have a pretty high poverty rate. We um, are pretty, uh, most of our state's pretty old. Um, and so, you know, an average cost of, you know, 65 or $70 a month is pretty expensive. Um, there are some efforts. We have a couple providers who are working very diligently to bring their costs down, but still, uh, even at $50 a month or $60 a month, it's still pretty expensive. So affordability is a significant issue in Maine. Um, and one of the things that uh, many towns we do this community planning process with communities across the state to figure out how to bring broadband to their area. And one of the things, one of the ta one of the tasks that they have to tackle is what is it, how are we going to make sure everybody in our town has access to this resource? And it's a significant challenge because it's, it may involve, um, it involves sort of rethinking how you're delivering services. And when you say we, I assume you're talking about the Connect Maine Authority, where, where you're the executive director. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about the Connect Maine Authority, when it originated, what you what you do? Uh, Connect Maine was actually created in about 2006. We're one of the first state agencies. Um, you know, at the time when it was created, it had not a lot of money and one staff. Um, it uh, grew to not much more money and three staff. And now we're still at not much money and two staff. Um, we provide, uh, we for most of the history of Connect Maine, we've done about $12 million in grants over the last 12 years um, and expanded services to people across the state. For a lot of that history, we were uh, doing trying to do wireless and expansions of DSL. 
Um, and then in about 2016, we changed our what we call our build standard to have at least a minimum of 10 up. And since then, we've seen many of our provide most of our grants go to fiber. Um, and so that has made a big difference in terms of us re having to rebuild the stuff that we've already paid for once. Um, and so we still have a lot of money. Um, we just got our first infusion of real money last summer from the from a state bond issue of $15 million. So our budget's about $1.5 a year. We have $15 million that we are in the first stage of um, putting out. We have an application open right now for providers and communities to come in to expand broadband either to, we have sort of two tracks. We like to think of it. One is what we call a provider expansion track, which is here's my footprint. I want to bring it out a little further. And then we have community tracks, which usually involve a community planning process and build to build much closer to universal service in a community. Um, we are expecting based on our work that we have, we're going to have over 50 applications for this first round of um, grants, which is a little daunting. Um, and then we know there is significant federal money coming, right? So for us and for many state agencies across, who do broadband across the country, all of us have about two people, right? All of us are sort of looking at this huge interest in broadband across the country and um, what our states are putting in and what the feds are putting in. And we're all like, okay, here it comes, because it just, it feels like the, the tsunami's about ready to hit us. And it really, it, the, the exciting thing is this is really a, a, a well, it's, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity to really begin to make some significant changes. So instead of building out a half mile here and a mile there, we're really gonna be able to make some significant changes in who gets service. And that's a really exciting piece. Um, the thing that we always keep in the back of our mind, or we try to keep always in the back of our mind, in all of our conversations is this piece around digital inclusion, right? So it's really, it's about how people, how, as we're building out, how do we make sure that we lower the cost of builds on the front end so that you can lower the cost of delivering services on the back end, right? Um, a lot of federal programs are focused really just on the back end, the EBB, the pro, EBB program, which is new and the first time we've done it and it's great. But it really focuses on the back end. And while that's needed, we also need to think about the front end. How do we lower the cost of these bills, lower the bureaucracy, lower the pole attachment costs, all of those things that bring down a cost so that it allows a provider potentially or a community who's building out to charge less. And the other two pieces around digital um, inclusion are making sure people have a device that they can use and making sure they know how to use it. So those are really the sort of four pieces that we look at, not just the wire, but can you afford the wire? Do you have a device? And do you know how to use it? Do you know how to connect to the, uni to the universe? Do you know how to do job searches? Do you know how to, all of those things that are involved in digital literacy. So how are you doing that? How are you, you know, baking affordability and digital literacy into everything that you're doing with broadband? So our community broadband plans, uh, one of the requirements is that that is a component of the plan, right? So when they pull in their plan, they have to have a strategy about how they're going to do that, right? Um, and for every community, it's a little different, um, but it's a key piece. The other pieces that we are doing, we have a, a grant out, we have an organization in the state called the National Digital Inclusion. And we, we, through our community development block grant, have just given them funding for uh devices and uh, literacy programs. They also got an EDA grant for to expand um, broadband literacy. 
Now, the neat thing about the pandemic is that they have moved all of their classes online, right? So they've got to have a device. But the result of that is they have a lot more people taking their courses, right? Nobody has to go anywhere. You can just go home and, you know, and so they have, you know, they've been working with, um, they were working with seniors, they've been on, on pharmacy access, they've been working with seniors on telehealth, they've been working with students, they've been working with people who are unemployed, all of those pieces. So that is a critical piece of how we do this work. It's a nonprofit organization that works, builds partnerships with adult ed and with libraries and with, um, you know, uh, AARP and others to figure out how to expand this digital literacy component. Um, the other thing we are trying to do now is um, figure out how to embed this in state government, right? So how do, how do we make sure that, um, one of the things I find that's that's a truism in, in broadband is that um, people who have internet make decisions for people who don't have it, right? And so we decide they can just apply online for unemployment insurance. And it never sort of occurs to us that they may not have access to it because they can't afford it. They may not have a device. They may not have any of those things. And so working with those agencies, uh, both the Department of Health and Human Services, Department of Education and Department of Labor to begin to really sort of rethink how we do this. So you have an understanding that some of the people walking through your door do not, not only do not have access to a, to a computer, but the computer in your office your career center that they're going to use, they need to learn how to use it, right? They need to learn how to do a resume on it. They need to learn how to do job search on it, all of those things. And so the piece around digital literacy about how we use this stuff needs to be built into the system all along the way. And I will say our libraries have done a phenomenal job at this, right? Right. So we have a main school library network, um, which has been in place since the late 90s and is right now in the process of upgrading to most schools and most libraries to get them to a gig, right? Everybody's going to have a gig service, which is huge, right? So there's a lot of electronic switching that has to happen, but we're moving that direction. The result of having this high quality connection for libraries, because they most of them have 100 over 100 now, is that the librarian's role has changed tremendously from someone who helped just help somebody find books to somebody who helps the community get access to the computer, use the computers in the system, figure out how to do job searches, all of those kinds of things that people now come to a library for online that they used to that they didn't used to. And so it's an interesting piece if you think about when you bring somebody a high quality service, um, like 100 over 100, and you give them the equipment, how the mission of that public organization changes to match the need that the community has. Just to humanize things a little bit for a second, can you bring some uh, stories to light? Like right now, one of the things you're talking about is people making decisions for people who don't have access to the internet. Something people really need access to the internet for right now is to make vaccination appointments. Um, what does that look like in your state, that disparity? And, and how is Maine handling that for people who can't access the internet? So there's a couple ways that we're doing it. Um, one is all of the um, uh, vaccination sites have phone numbers that people can call in on, right? So that's one, one way that they do it. Um, we are also doing much more um, outreach. So we're bringing vaccines more into communities, into health centers, beginning to push it into doctor's offices, all of that kind of piece. But the other thing that's actually happening is there's, of course, why not, an online Facebook group. Um, and they're actually, it's the, the name of it, we are CDC directors, a guy named Dr. Shaw, and he does, the, you know, by every, every, 
every other day he's on the, and he's very honest and very forthright. So this group is called Friends of Dr. Shaw and they are helping people get connected, right? So people, people put, post a message and say, my mother can't get connected and they do messenger and they figure out, and whoever's online figures out how to connect them up to an appointment. So it's a whole variety of, um, you know, help. Some of it completely non-official, but, but communities helping each other um, to get online. So we do have a strategy about outreach that is um, that we understand. So we, we've done a vaccination clinic in a town in Southern uh, York County where they went to the town office and vaccinated people. And when people couldn't get in, they would go out, pick them up and bring them back. You know, so there's a whole variety of methods that we're using to spread out the vaccination. Some of them are these big, large clinics that push out, you know, several thousand people a day. And then there's others much more personal, much more local um, that really depend on the local people and the volunteers um, working with people in that community to get them in and get them vaccinated. Well, that is great and very encouraging to hear. Um, let's pivot just for a minute um, to talk about federal legislation, where we happen to be talking the week that President Biden unveiled his American Jobs Plan, which includes $100 billion for broadband infrastructure funding to connect every American to high-speed broadband. Um, so what's your take on that aspect of the plan? What do you need most from lawmakers as they negotiate the final bill or bills? So I have some very strong opinions on this. Um, and my, uh, you know, broadband is a street by street battle and the funding should flow through the organizations that are closest to the street. So I really think that um, this type of funding should come into the states as state black grants. We are the ones who are like literally in the trenches with these communities and with these providers trying to figure out what's going on. Our maps are a little better than the feds. feds. We're all working to make them even better. Um, and we actually have the relationships and have a better understanding of what's going on. So my first thing, and this is true about the about the Clyburn bill, and is that we need to stop giving money to the FCC. We've done a lot of that, um, and I think that it's time that we try. You know, the the la the coronavirus relief package that passed last spring was pretty loose in what they could do, what states could do with it, and 22 states stood up in nine months. Um, programs to expand broadband and about $700 million that, that the state spent. Um, and we did it in nine months. And that is we connected people in nine months. So, you know, some of these federal programs like USDA Reconnect, they can take two or three years. The RDOF fund is six or eight years. So states are showing that we can do this work and we can do it smarter and we can do it faster. Um, and so I think that is an important piece. The other thing about states that we do that the feds don't do is we really we try to include the communities, right? People who we're bringing service to, they have to be part of this conversation about what is it they want for their community's future so they can get the kind of service that they think their community needs now and in the future. So that's my thing is that I really think that um, this money should flow uh, closer to the service, so more to, to the states. The, the couple of things that I would say about um, Biden's plan is that he really does emphasize as a priority community-owned infrastructure. And that goes back to where I talk about how we lower the cost of this so we can lower the expense on the other end. Communities don't have a profit interest in this, right? Their interest is serving the public. And there are lots and lots of models. There's about seven or 800 uh, community-owned broadband networks out there, right? So some of them are... Um, actually community owned or utility districts. 
Some of them are electric co-ops. Some of them are just straight co-ops. But there's lots of examples out there of successful models uh, where the community has built out their own network and um, with a focus on quality and cost. Um, and I think that part of his plan is very exciting. The other part of his plan that's very exciting is he does really recognize the importance of digital literacy and digital inclusion, right? That doesn't happen at the FCC. They give big companies money and there's no, I mean, with Ardoff money, there's no, you don't even have to connect anybody, right? And never mind figure out how to provide them affordable service or make sure they can get devices or any of those things. And so again, his plan, looking at the whole picture, like this whole stool, right? The wire, the, the, the quality of service, the affordability, the device, the, the literacy, all of those pieces are what give people access to the internet. And to me, that's the exciting piece of his plan is that it really does focus on the entire picture. It's not just, let's, let's, let's just build wires everywhere. It's really, how do we do it? How do we do it smartly? How do we do it inclusively so that the communities are served? And how do we do it that takes into consideration what you really need to have access to the internet? The other thing that his plan does is it doesn't just focus on rural. I mean, you know, in Maine, we have a lot of rural that's unserved, but there's a lot of parts of this country that are urban that are unserved too, right? They don't have great connections. They can't afford them. They've been redlisted, redlined. There's a lot of people in this country who do not have good quality service. And that is true in Maine too, in our urban neighborhoods. And those are areas that traditionally have not been funded because they're served, right? But when you look at the whole picture of not just of, of the quality of service they get, but also whether it's affordable and whether they have access to it because of that affordability, that changes the equation tremendously. And if the internet is going to be, which I think it is, the great equalizer for this economy, we got to make sure everybody has equal access to that equalizer. Absolutely. Um I think that's a great place for us to end, Peggy. I've really appreciated your time today, and I'd love to catch up with you again on on how Maine is progressing uh, as as these laws, uh, as these bills make it into law. The tsunami hits us. Exactly. Yes, I'll talk to you under the wave of the tsunami. Thank you so much, Peggy Schaefer, for your time. And thank you to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.